started. I love it. Um, it's so great to see everyone fellowshipping and talking. It's awesome. Everyone's in their places with sunshiny faces, as we say. So it's good to see you. We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy that we can gather together and learn more about you through your word. We pray as we look into the book of Proverbs that you would help us with wisdom. That you'd help us to understand both giving and receiving the giving to you and receiving discipline from you, Lord. And we pray that you'd give us the wisdom to do these things so we may live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, everyone, I want you to remember that last week we had talked in this section in Proverbs 3 about giving and how we were to honor God in our giving. That's what Solomon had revealed. But what we talked about are the differences in giving under the Old and the New Covenant. And one of the passages that we looked at is in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 through 7, showed that the believer under the New Covenant is no longer obligated, for example, to the tithe or the command of the first fruits, but rather because we are the ones who are endowed by the Holy Spirit, we before God give according to that which we purpose in our heart. And the idea is that those who are redeemed, who have a mind that's renewed, are going to be those who give cheerfully of their own accord, not under compulsion. And so I want to remind you of that. Second Corinthians 9, 5 through 7, Paul was talking about this collection that he was raising for those in Jerusalem, the saints. And he talked about how the Macedonians had given generously. Now he was challenging the Corinthians to give generously. He said to them, So I thought it necessary to urge you, the brethren, that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now notice verse 7. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So notice that not under compulsion, but cheerfully, what one has purposed in their own heart. Now how does that differ from the Old Covenant? Well, in the Old Covenant, you had to give, if you lived in that theocracy of Israel, 10%. Now, is the New Covenant believer commanded to give 10%? No. The idea is that you can give more, (laughs) but you also can give less. It's up to you. Why? Because you have the Spirit. And so this is one of the ways that we see that the New Covenant is certainly different than the Old Covenant. Now, why is that important when we're reading the book of Proverbs? Well, the book of Proverbs has promises in Proverbs chapter 3, for those who give. For those who give, God is going to bless their barns and he's going to give them a bountiful crop. That's because he made covenant promises. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 28 to Israel that he has not given to any other nation. He didn't make American farmers a promise that if we all are generous in our giving and give at least 10%, that there's not going to be a drought in America. No, those are promises that we said are for Israel. One thing I want to look at is I want to look at the difference between the Old and the New Covenant by having you turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 9. I'm sorry, you know what? I already put that verse up. I'm trying to find the... I thought I copied another... Oh, it's in the next slide. That's what it is. 
Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. I knew I wasn't losing my mind. I knew I'd copied it in there. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. Please turn your Bibles there. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. Now, this is a passage in which we see from the Apostle Paul the superiority of the new covenant. And again, what I'm just trying to show you is that, yes, indeed, under the new covenant, there's a big difference in giving because the believer is endowed by the Holy Spirit. So think about one uh, phrase that you want to keep in your mind is this Latin phrase, sine qua non. The idea is that if you have the Spirit, it is the sine qua non, the, the essential ingredient without which you are not partakers of the new covenant. So it was the Holy Spirit who brought you to faith in Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit who enables you to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. Remember in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh, meaning they're outside of the Spirit, they can do nothing pleasing to God. So I want you to see the big difference between the Old and the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6, notice Paul says, not that we, and here he's using, I think, a royal apostolic we, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, this would apply, of course, to every Christian. Every Christian can say, hey, I was made adequate as a servant under the new covenant, not because of some command under the old covenant, but because of the Spirit. Notice that phrase at the very end of the verse 6. It says, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Does everyone remember that at the first Pentecost, by the way, this is somewhat tradition, but I think it's probably accurate. The very first Pentecost that ever occurred was the giving of the law. And you can read about this in Exodus chapter 32. In fact, in Exodus 32, 28, the first Pentecost where you had the giving of the law, do you remember how many died? 3,000 died. Why? Because they had committed idolatry. Do you remember, fast forward to the Pentecost where the Spirit is given in the book of Acts. Do you remember in Acts, I believe it's 241, how many came to faith in Christ? 3,000. And so I think if we're careful readers, we can say, hey, where the old covenant killed the letter, 3,000 perish. Under the new covenant, the giving of the Spirit, 3,000 came to life. So, indeed, the letter does kill the giving of the law. It doesn't have... Now, let's just hold on to that for a minute. Is the problem the law or is the problem our sin nature? Well, the problem is our sin nature. And so the law co-ops our sin nature. Or I should say the sin nature co-ops the law. And it's incited by the law to do further evil. And again, it's not the law's problem. The law, as Paul says, is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is our sin nature. But that's what the Spirit changes. So when we look at giving then under the new covenant, we can start to see why it is that you and I are free to give of our own accord rather than simply following commands by rote from the old covenant. Yes, Adam, I'll get you a mic. Carly is coming to you. Uh, This will partially reinforce what you're saying, uh, but also 
show that under the old covenant, the spirit uh, even at work in the midst of the people. Uh, yes. He came in the midst of the people. And so uh, with uh, the golden calf, uh, the people came out of Egypt with gold, with silver, with fine linens, uh, with all of these materials. Uh, and Moses went up on the mountain. And what did the people do uh, with uh, their possessions that they brought out of Egypt? They built, it, built an idol and worshipped it. <laughs> well, after uh, Moses came down and God, God brought judgment uh, in their midst, uh, Moses interceded for the people. Uh, and afterwards, after God promised he would take the people out of Egypt, uh, then he instructed them to take a voluntary free will offering uh, for anyone whose hearts moved them. And I, I believe that the, the spirit was at work in the midst of the people. So now instead of giving their possessions uh, to build a golden calf and idols to worship, uh, now uh, they give contributions for the tabernacle to worship uh, the one true God. So I just wanted to read just part of this passage. Yes, Exodus. Uh, 35, and then we'll ju- just jump down. Yes. Uh, Exodus 35, verse 4. Moses, I think Paul is probably drawing on some of these themes mm-hmm. and ideas. Uh, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones uh, for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Uh, He goes on, but then if you jump down to verse 20, here's the result uh, of this offering. Uh, Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all the service, and for the holy garments. Uh, So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings, all the sort of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And then jump down to the last verse, uh, 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work uh, that the Lord had commanded by Moses uh, to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And that talks about Bezalel and Aholiab, who were filled with the Holy Spirit to use all these materials to build the the tabernacle, and that God was at work uh, in their midst, equipping them uh, to build this. So, Amen. Oh, thank you so much, Adam. But I great. think Paul is drawing uh, on some of these themes. Yeah, great reference. And so under the Old and the New Covenant, it's fair to say that we have continuity and we have discontinuity. And one of the things that we have continuity in is the fact that unless the Spirit moves, there's death. That's one of the things that we see. Do you remember last week we talked about Numbers 18? where God took, instead of taking the firstborn, as all of the pagan deities did, they demanded the sacrifice of the firstborn. Well, what God did is he took the Levites instead, and he says, I took them in order to give them back as a gift to you. And so God, God is graciously the one who is giving them the covenant. He gave them the priesthood. He says in Leviticus 17 that even the sacrifices come from him. Nobody produced their own goats. All the goats... And the, the lambs and the rams 
They all come from him. Do you remember the old joke? There's a battle between the atheist and God. And the atheist says, I can create too. And so he goes to dig in the dirt. He's going to create something. And God says, well, get your own dirt. <laughs> it's all his, right? That's the idea is it all comes from him. Uh, as Paul says in Athens, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. And so that's the idea is that God graciously certainly works under the old covenant. The whole Mosaic covenant is an act of his grace. However, we do see that there are differences. And uh, by the way, Adam was one who really helped me see this very clearly some years ago out of a good reading of 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says he's no longer under the law, but he's under the law of Christ. So why would he say, remember, to those who are under the law, it became like one who was under the law to win those under the law. But the one, remember, he talks about he's bringing all things to all people so that by all possible means some may be saved. Well, in that section, he makes it very clear. He's not under the old covenant. He's under the new covenant. Um, think about Hebrews 8.13. The old covenant has been made obsolete. Okay, and so what is made obsolete is fading away, the writer of Hebrews says. So one of the things that we see under the new covenant is there are some discontinuity Issues. There are some issues that are different. So again, let me point... Oh, i got to pull up my pointer. It should be red. There we go. Giving 10% was mandatory under the Old Covenant. That's the tithe. But notice, now it's up to the believer. Now, let me explain one of the reasons I think this is important. Some years ago, Bob and I were in a little bit of a debate with some, somebody who was claiming that giving was a means of grace. And by the way, that category came from a systematic theology text that someone had. And so the idea is that if you give, it's a means of grace that God uses to sanctify you. But what's interesting, under the new covenant, I want you to see that God blessed, therefore we give. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 9.8. Can, can someone read 2 Corinthians 9.8? So... If we say that giving is a means of grace, we're having it backwards because God graciously worked in us in the first place. That's why we give. And that's really what Adam was reading about. Even under the old covenant, those who were moved by the Spirit, God had graciously worked in their lives, and therefore they're willing to give. Oh, do you have it, Scott? Thank you. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Carly's right there. 2 Corinthians 9.8. Listen to this. This gives us the reason for why we're able to give. Second Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In every good work. We can abound in every good work. Why? Because he graciously worked in us. So think of this. Uh, the one way I think we should think of it is the means of grace. It's things that God gives us to sanctify us. He's commanded that you and I would not forsake the assembling together, Hebrews 10.25. We are those who are commanded to pray. In fact, Paul says pray without ceasing. We're commanded to do the Lord's Supper. We're commanded to preach the word in season and out of season. Those are means of grace. If we do those things, God is going to use them and graciously sanctify the believer primarily by keeping the promises of God in the forefront of our minds. But giving is not something that we do in order that you and I become more sanctified, but rather I think what the new covenant says is because you've been sanctified and set apart and God has graciously worked, you're moved to give. So saying it the other way around becomes a works-based issue. I give to get. No, you got, therefore you give. And that's the big distinction that I want you to see 
between the Old and the New Covenant by and large. Again, there's continuity and discontinuity. Anyone who was saved under the Old Covenant was saved because the Spirit brought them to faith. Salvation's always been by faith. If the Israelite who, and I use this kind of crassly, but put his goat in the offering plate, thought that he was saved merely through the sacrifice, he was not, or she was not. No, they were saved by faith. And in faith, yes, they had to offer that offering. They were commanded to do it. But they weren't saved by the sacrifice. They were saved by faith in Yahweh who gave the sacrifice. That's the idea. So salvation's always been by faith. That's why Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I just, I can't resist also saying in, in this, uh, we have to, you know, we have to know what the promises are yes. and, what, and what they're not. Yep. In other words, we're promised here that we will have, if we have the right attitude towards giving, and I would add the right attitude towards everything in the gospel, everything that the Bible teaches us, everything. Yeah. If we have the right attitude, we will have all sufficiency in everything. And why? Not so we can buy a bigger boat or have more luxury items, right. you know. It's that we may have an abundance for every good good deed. Right. And biblically, good deeds consist of preaching Christ. Amen. So, so there's so many false promises that people make out there. Right. Well said. You know, it reminds me, Eric, as you said that, that passage, it reminds me of that 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. At the very end, the scripture is able to equip us for how many good works? For every good work. So, yes, you see the sufficiency of the Spirit, and, of course, the Spirit gives us the scriptures, and he equips us for how many good works? Every good work. Absolutely. Yeah. I was God. just going to add to what Eric said, is that those... Those uh, evangelists, especially word faith evangelists, you know, they preach, give, give to me and God will give. Right, right. Or the word of faith movement. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, you, you give to get, right? And it's so many times I remember hearing as a brand new believer, I would go, see, I was at Crystal Airport. That's where I was a flight instructor. And that was fairly close to the, the Living Word Church. And so I knew a lot of the people that were going to that church. They came out and they were flying and so I would go to the, hear their sermons, brand new, never knew the Bible at all. And all of a sudden, every message I'm hearing is about giving. So for years, I thought the majority of the Bible is all about giving. And then what's funny, after the years I've been preaching verse by verse with Bob, I realized, no, actually, under the new covenant, there is not a lot about giving. You, um, you have to pick and choose to find all of that. But the reason they were doing that is because in the Word of Faith movement, your faith is no longer in the object of Christ. Your faith is a force. Just like Luke Skywalker uses the force to get what he wants. You know, you need your lightsaber, it's 10 feet away, you use the force. You use faith as a force to get what you want. And so that's the big distinction. The Word of Faith movement, faith is a force. In biblical Christianity, faith is in the object of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's a huge difference. Exactly right. It's very much like that. Yes. So anyway, well, hey, this is the differences that I wanted you to see. But I want to move on now because I want you to see that there's a part two to this Proverbs 3 pericope that we were in. And that's the need to receive God's discipline. Listen to what Solomon wrote. He said, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son 
in whom he delights. Now, I want you to notice here, first of all, where he says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. We probably have synonymous parallelism there. Okay, so in other words, they're not saying two different things. They're very much saying the same thing. Okay, reproof is correction, but discipline really is as well. And that's the one thing that we see in the term Hebrew, the term in Hebrew, Masar, for discipline. Does everyone see that? It has to do with an instruction that corrects the believer. So it's not discipline in the sense of punishment so that the believer perishes, but it's discipline in the sense of reproof so that we are corrected in our behavior and first and foremost in our thought process. That's the idea of discipline from the Lord. Now, I want you to see where this term Musar first came up in the book of Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs 1.3, just two chapters earlier. I want you to see how it's rendered instruction by the New American Standard Bible. So I want you to see how closely Musar is to instruction from the Lord. And again, I'll lay out how this occurs providentially at the hand of God and how he brings discipline in our lives. But I want to just define musar a little bit and show you how else it's used. Proverbs 1.3, notice here, this is the purpose of the book of Proverbs. Notice it says, To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. Okay, so notice the term instruction there. That's musar, the same term that we see on the screen for discipline. Okay, so part of discipline is God instructing us on how we should think and how we should act. That's the idea. And so if we have wisdom, our belief system and our actions are going to lead us to loving God and loving neighbor. Remember, Jesus himself said that in Mark chapter 12, to love neighbor and to love God was the first commandment, right? Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So if you and I really have instruction or wisdom according to the new covenant, that's what it leads to. But under the old covenant, it would be the same thing, that if you and I really have instruction and true wisdom, you and I are going to love the Lord our God. So discipline is designed to bring us back to that. It's a reproof. Now, I want you to see another place that's very interesting where that reproof idea or discipline is used. Musar, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53, 5. And as you're turning there, again, think about this discipline that comes from the Lord. Providentially in your life, God brings this about to chasten you. Not to damage you or hurt you, but to keep you within the fold. And this is something that he providentially brings about in your life. It's not something you volunteer for. But I also talk about how we shouldn't volunteer to do it to others. This is something that God brings about. So, for example, I remember a time in my life, I'll just give an example where I think God probably disciplined me. You know, for many years, I really had no health problems at all. And it's really difficult to have empathy or sympathy for those who have health problems when you've never had any. And all of a sudden, I remember one day, I'm, I was actually teaching here, and my back started bothering me. I went 44 years, never had a back pain. And it got worse, and it got worse, and worse, and worse, and finally, I could hardly walk. And I tell you what, when somebody started telling me that they had back pain, I really started to have sympathy and empathy. I developed a, a cough one day, and I learned that I had asthma. And I found, Anyways, I don't give you in all my medical conditions, but the point is, I started realizing 
you know, some of these things people really struggle with. And so I started having empathy and sympathy. And I, again, I don't have a, a word of revelation from the Lord, from the scriptures, but I do believe that God providentially works all things for your good. And I know one way that I developed more empathy and sympathy for people was by suffering in like manner. And I think that God does these things in our lives. And again, we don't control them. We don't volunteer. Say, hey, Lord, you know, I'd really like some asthma coming my way. I don't think we volunteer. But God brings them about in our lives and he can use them. Again, as Romans 8, 28 says, he uses all things for our good, right? Now, notice here, very interestingly, in Isaiah 53, 5, let's think about the idea of discipline and how we're all called to be disciplined as sons and daughters by the Lord. But listen to what ultimate discipline leads to and necessitates. Isaiah 53, 5, talking about the future suffering servant, the Messiah, it says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice the four. That's the idea of substitution. He was pierced through for our transgressions. That's the idea of substitution. It's all over the Bible. Okay, so think about 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Substitution, right? So you see this all over Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now notice the term, the chastening. This is the New American Standard Bible, by the way. The chastening, there's musar. For our well-being, there's shalom fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So think about the discipline for our peace, the discipline that brought us well-being, ultimately was paid for by Christ. He paid for it. He took upon himself as a son the ultimate form of discipline for us. He took upon himself the discipline on our behalf. So the one way I think about that is on all of our sinful natures, none of us ever did that which was required by God. None of us ever were disciplined to the point of separation from God as believers, right? Because we are those who are going to be with him forever. But Christ took upon himself that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's the idea of our failing in receiving the discipline of the Lord. Christ had to come, handed to do that for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves. Okay, now I want you to see how this passage, notice in Proverbs three eleven through 12, that is cited by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews twelve five. And so the writer of Hebrews is picking up on this idea that, yes, under the new covenant, the people of God will be given discipline. And again, it's something that God providentially brings about in your life. The writer of Hebrews says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now here's Proverbs 3, what we just read, 11 through 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. One thing we have to remember is that in our lives, God providentially brings about this discipline as he sees fit. And one of the passages that I want you to turn to to see this is 1 Peter 1, 5 through 6. Please turn your Bibles there. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 6. Now, as you're turning to 1 Peter 1, 5 through 6, I'll tell you a little story. Some years ago, 
I was on the board of a ministry, and on the board of this ministry, there was a promise made to another ministry in which the ministry that I was on the board of, we went back on a promise. And I didn't like that because I think we should be people of our word. And when I challenged those who are in authority, they said, well, the reason we did that is because we're disciplining this other ministry. Well, no, that's not the role of you and me to bring about the discipline in another believer's life. That's something that the Lord providentially brings about. Now, I'll talk about church discipline. I'll talk about there is a role for the believer in limited senses, but I'll, I will come to that. But I want you to see that 99% of the time, the Lord is going to bring discipline providentially in your life as he sees fit. Again, you weren't responsible for wrecking my back <laughs> or bringing asthma upon me. And I know all of you have ailments, etc. No, you know that's something the Lord brought upon you, and you know it's for your good. But I want you to see a passage that proves this. Notice in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 6. Remember, Peter's addressing Christians in Asia Minor who are suffering. And he has to explain why are they suffering. So notice in verse 5, he says, regarding believers, they are the ones who are protected by the power of God. He says, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, if necessary. It's a day. The term necessary is D-E-I, if you were to transliterate it into English. D-E-I, day. Why is day important? Because oftentimes it has to do with the necessity of God. So here, I think it's referring to the divine necessity that if God deems it necessary, Peter is saying, you're distressed by various trials. So who is it that determines whether or not you're going to be distressed by various trials? Is it some other Christian? Is it some other person? No, it's God. God is the one who determines when you get asthma or when you get a bad back or whatever ailment you have. He's the one who brings it about. So This is one of the reasons why, do you remember Bob has taught us so well for so many years about how you have these, uh, during the church age, you have these people who are monks and um, the desert fathers, as they're called. They're not fathers in any way, but they will try to beat themselves and make themselves suffer. And it's as if they're usurping God saying, I'll bring upon myself the discipline of the Lord. I'll bring it upon myself. I'll bring all the suffering that I need and we'll just leave the Lord out of it. He won't providentially bring it about. I'll do it to myself and make myself more holy. But I want you to see, no, in 1 Peter 1, 5, and 6, it's God who brings it upon you. Yes, I'm sorry, we'll get to uh, Steve and then Bob. Go ahead, Steve. It's a pretty common theme in the Old Testament where God does allow these things so he can heal Yes. I mean, and, and, and what does he do? He's bringing glory to himself in that manner. In the New Testament, Barb helped me find this verse. It says, praise, it's in 2 uh, Corinthians 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble which the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Oh, wow. Great, great. I'm sorry. Can you read the passage? Just the, what was, where was that from? Second Corinthians, uh, one, three, and four. One, three, and four. Okay. Second Corinthians one, three, and four. Did everyone hear that? That's a great cross reference. Yeah. And it ties very nicely and we become more compassionate as we're disciplined as well. Right. Yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, well said. Yeah, Bob. From the interactions we get with people who read articles or listen to us. Yeah. It seems that Christians need some sort of teaching to get over being dualists. Mm. And what I mean by that is the assumption, and I've heard some pretty significant people known worldwide say the devil's in charge of the bad stuff and God's in charge of the good stuff. And that's how people look at it until right. they learn something different. Have you noticed that? Yeah, that's Jessica? a good point. So right. that's why there's an ongoing uh, Sunday school assignment, which is read Romans eight twenty six to the very end. Yes. And let that sink in because you can't be a Manichaean dualist and believe Romans 8 at the same time. Yes. And so what people get wrong is the idea that if we can fight Satan, then the good stuff will come our way. Right, right. But that's not how the Bible portrays it. The, the issue that's there is whether we're in the realm of darkness or in the realm of light. We need a the, domain transfer. Yes, yeah, a domain transfer. Uh, yes. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. When you first tell people that, they, they don't get it. Because the teachings that sell the most books are telling you how to defeat Satan by figuring out what he's doing or wants to do without consulting what God says about yes. this. Yes, wow. Yeah, so good. it's really uh, a big thing to overcome uh, centuries of false teaching that mm. people have been listening to. Yes. Now, the reason that is so damaging is if you really believe that there's some secret to defeating Satan so that the good things come. Whenever, if you get old enough, eventually something bad happens in your life. And, well, now Satan has me. And what caused, for me anyhow, in the early 80s when we had been hearing that sort of thing, was to see godly, elderly people that loved the Lord and trusted him and would do anything for anybody thinking they failed God uh, as they're on their deathbed. Oh, wow. And a couple of us visited a number of people in that condition, and the statement was the same. What did I do wrong? Oh, wow. And because of the teaching that we're talking about, that. Yeah. Somehow or another, if you pray right or you know which spirit to rebuke or which curse to break or which prayer to pray, yeah. and we're, we're going to do some podcasts on this, but if you tell God exactly what he should do, then you'll get the right answer. And so Romans eight twenty six to the very end, I think it was the 39? Yeah. The remedy's that. It's, it? it's unknown in a yeah, church. Right. And you tell that to people, they're not comforted, they just glaze over. Because they think the devil's in charge of everything negative, 
God's in charge of everything positive. And if the negative shows up, now you need to go buy a bunch of books and learn how to get the devil out of your life. Right, right. Or God can't answer your prayer because you didn't say it just right. Yes. And what that does ultimately is give us instability where we should be rooted and grounded in Christ. Yeah. And we should have hope. We shouldn't be losing our hope because there's problems we can't solve. Right, right. And the discipline of the Lord is through providence, other than church discipline, where someone says, I have a right to live a certain way that God says you do not. Right. That is our responsibility yep. in the church. But on the bigger scheme of things, do we believe that God is going to do everything he's promised to do yeah. to bring us all the way to glory? Amen. And that the future glory is so great that it wouldn't matter what we went through. Yeah. It's worth it. Amen. But we don't decide how, how you know, we can't flagellate ourselves. And right. <laughs> bring it upon ourselves. Yeah. That's well said. So does everybody know um, Bob brought up dualism? So in dualism, you have two opposite equals. So I always think of, like, Star Wars. Remember in Star Wars, the made-up world of Star Wars, you have the good force and the bad force, the light and the dark, and they're equals. And so that's the conception that some Christians have of God and Satan, that God is an equal, as it were, of Satan, or Satan is the equal of God, and he does the bad things and God does the good things. And so when a Christian suffers, if they have that worldview, they say, well, I have to start defeating Satan. I must be being attacked by him. But what Bob is showing us that in Romans 8 and other places in the Bible, the Christian worldview says, no, God is the one who is in charge of his angels. There is no equal to God. He uses the angels and even the demons for his purposes. And so he brings that all about. So think about you're watching the, the movie Memphis Bell. Remember the movie about B-17s? I remember the tail gunner. They're nervous. These guys are being shot at by German Messerschmitts and flat guns. And so the one guy, he's got a rabbit's foot in his pocket. And another guy doesn't want to step on a crack lest he breaks his mother's back. And you become a bunch of pagans trying to manipulate the cosmic forces. That's what pagans do. So you and I don't have to worry about operating on Friday the 13th. Uh, do you know that there are some buildings you can go down in Minneapolis and the elevators will not go to a 13th floor? It bypasses that? Oh, really? Almost all of them? I didn't know that. It's been a while since I've been downtown. <laughs> Really? Yeah, so it'll go, what, what does it go, 12 to 14? Yeah. So they don't have a 13 at all. Why? Because people are trying to manipulate the cosmic forces because they don't have the worldview that Bob was just talking about, that God does cause all things to work for the good for those who love him and called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. I'm sorry, I saw a microphone. Yeah, Norm. Um, getting back to uh, where you're talking about God brings certain things upon us because of lessons we need to learn and, and so yes. forth. I'm trying to uh, also tie in the idea of uh, we reap what we sow. You know, we live a life a certain way. We make all kinds of bad choices and do things, and we suffer consequences. So we, we bring things upon ourselves, too, but I'm, God can use those as well. Yes. And I guess I'm trying to balance those two ideas. Absolutely. No, you're right. Um, in fact, Adam had mentioned that some, I don't know if it was last week or um, remember where Jesus talks about if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And in, in fact, we learned earlier in the book of Proverbs, remember that proverb idiom 
It was an idiomatic statement where Solomon says that those who are engaged in the life of crime and they get gained by shedding the blood of the innocent, he said they're like a bird with a net spread out before the seed. And it was kind of a strange idiomatic statement, but the idea is when the bird is looking at the seed, he just sees the gain, but he doesn't see the net that's about to come upon him and kill him. That's the way the criminal is. They see the gain from their criminal activities, but they don't know that it's leading to their own destruction. That is certainly wisdom. And so if you live a lifestyle in which you're a criminal shedding innocent people's blood, yes, you should expect that that's probably the way your end is going to be as well. So yes, there are... And by the way, we're not speaking of karma. It's not that we're speaking of. We're just saying that, yes, the world has really been a place in which there are rulers and authorities who will go after those who do evil deeds for the benefit of society, even though they're pagan rulers. They are still used for our good to restrain evil by God. And so, yes, that's, that's a very, very good statement, Norm. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, I'm sorry, anybody else? Did I miss anybody with a hand raised? Oh, yeah, Rich. Yeah, please. What, what, what Bob was talking about in dualism and all these things, could you see that, or maybe I'm wrong, the essence of the root of the problem is, is Arminianism. If I, by my own free will, accept Jesus Christ and I have dominion over the evil and the good and stuff, and I insert myself into all these spiritual things that I have no business inserting myself into, due to the fact that I accepted Jesus by my own free will, the yeah. Arminian I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So if I, by my own free will, do these things, then I insert myself into too much stuff that I shouldn't have no business being in, like dualism. You know, let me say it this way, Rich. I think certainly Arminianism is an attack on the sovereignty of God. That he really does choose those whom he will save. Um, We've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And we either are those who say, well, the reason that occurred is because of something I did, which I don't think the Bible teaches, or it's purely by his grace, which is what the Bible teaches. That does put us on a firm footing of God's sovereignty. And that does play out through the rest of our theology in that if we don't get that right, it does have ramifications later on. Absolutely. Now, I'm not claiming that any Arminian or every Arminian is a dualist or anything like that, but I'm just saying it can lead to problems, and we, we have to have it. That's why I think it's important to get the sovereignty of God right in the doctrine of election. Yes, Jessica. Well, and I, I think another part of that link then is if God is not sovereign... And my security and my salvation are found in decisions I've made. Well, the God who wasn't sovereign to save me is not sovereign to keep me either. And so it always comes back to me and my decisions, not God who is in control of all things. So if God is not in control of all things, now I need to find the right, right way to do things, the right way to pray, the right way to bind Satan or whatever I think. Because if God is not sovereign over all of his creation, then we are going to end up with dualism because it's now us fighting on the side of God against the evil ones out there. It, it, there. I think there really is a connection there. Right. When you fail to see God's sovereignty, right. that's all, the door is wide open for everything else. Well said. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I, the way I would answer it is not every Arminian is a dualist per se, but certainly Arminianism would open you up to dualism, if that makes sense. It's kind of like people will ask, is, are all Catholics lost? Well, a Catholic is saved 
not because of Catholicism, but despite Catholicism. In other words, in any given congregation, you may have a Catholic who is saved because they really believe the gospel, but it certainly isn't because what they were hearing in the doctrines of Catholicism. And I, Yeah, I'm sorry, Adam. Yeah, so I, I think you're all right. I mean, Rich, like what you're touching on is God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, and uh, Jesse, like she really nailed it, that yes. uh, it's really an issue of God's sovereignty. Amen. I mean, not just in salvation, but in creation. Is he the creator of his universe? Uh, is he the creator of history? Is he in control of his creation, or is it independent of him? Amen. Uh, does it, and so, I mean, issues of compatibilism, uh, God's sovereignty, yes. uh, that human choices, human uh, Choices that we make in daily life, God is also sovereign over those. Yes, we make choices. We yeah. act. Uh, we act according to our heart's desires uh, in whatever situations uh, we are placed in and whatever uh, choices uh, present themselves to us. But God is sovereign over, uh, over all of those as well. The, the Bible teaches both things, uh, human responsibility and that God is king over his universe. Uh, and he Adam, define that again, the compatibilism, because that's where both are maintained, the human free will, but also not in the sense of salvation, but that God is sovereign, and yet he does use the choices of human beings. Yeah, well, how did R.C. Sproul put it? Uh, God, God is free, and I am free, but <laughs> when, when it comes to, uh, uh, to the clash or conflict of the two, God is freer than I am. Or like he, <laughs> basically, I but, like but basically, yes, we, we, so oftentimes in Arminianism, what, what they're arguing for is libertarian free will, and that's an insistence that I act independently of God, yes. independently of God's sovereignty, independently of God's uh, plan uh, over history and governance uh, and control over all things. I act outside independently of that. Uh, that's libertarian uh, free will. Uh, yes, and well that's said. really, that's really the, the conflict. Uh, we do live, we do make choices, but God... Uh, rules over those. He is sovereign. And so summed up, to, to bring it to scripture, uh, what, did, uh, what did Joseph say to his brothers? What do you meant As for, evil? for you, yeah, you intended evil against me, yeah. but God, what, what you intend for evil against me, God intended for good Amen. to bring about this present result uh, to preserve many people alive. Amen. And so in all of the wicked deeds, all of the uh, as Joseph's brothers followed their heart's desires and sent them off into Egypt uh, to be a slave and uh, presented him as uh, dead uh, before his father Jacob. Just in all of these sins, God was at work in all of it uh, to bring about his good purposes. And so the two are compatible, uh, as right. we would say. Scripture teaches both. Well said. And Job is important. Yeah, it's Job the same way, right? I was th that's a good point, Bob. And then I was thinking of a member in Acts where Christ was foreordained for the cross, but he says you nailed him to the cross. You see God's sovereign plan, but humans were accountable. And together were gathered, Pontius Pilate, the religious yes. leaders, uh, all the people to do whatever your hand and will predestined yes, to occur. So, See, I yeah. wanted to um, thank you, Adam. Thank you so much for the great discussion. Um, I want to come back to the purpose of discipline in our lives to edify us. 
And I want to turn to Romans 5, 2 through 5, because I want you to see the idea of the trials that God brings about providentially in our lives brings about hope. And I want to talk about this hope that we have. And it's something that we have the moment we believe. I think hope is synonymous with saving faith, but it's future-oriented. Uh, Romans 5, 2 through 5. Notice it's talking about here, remember Romans 4 is all about justification by faith alone. Now Romans 5 is talking about the consequences from this justified state that we have through faith alone in Christ alone. He says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into, his, into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The term hope, it's interesting, is one of the first terms I learned in Greek. It's elpis. And the reason I could remember that is because people hope that Elvis is alive. And Elpis sounds like Elvis, right? <laughs> I don't know why I think about that all the time. But think about this, biblical hope. You and I often think about hope as, oh, I hope I don't get audited by the IRS, or I hope the Vikings can win a Super Bowl someday. But the biblical hope that this trials, the trials of life that God providentially brings about, the hope that's brought about in our heart is one in which we have a, a certain expectation that Christ is going to break through the clouds to bring us home to give us a resurrection, to give us a glorified state where you and I will no longer sin against our God and will be with him in this great kingdom that's coming to earth, followed by the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem will reign with him forever and ever. That's the hope that you and I are being built up in the trials and the tribulations that God providentially brings about in our lives. So, for example, when you go through something... Russ, I don't mean to, I know you've gone through some painful things lately just with your back. You and I were commiserating about back issues. The thing is that Russ, as he's brought through that, he says, I'm still in the faith. I'm still trusting in Jesus Christ. So what does that do for him? Well, that shows that he really belongs. And therefore, that these promises are really his. Why? Because he didn't depart. He didn't leave the path of Christ alone, faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone through the scriptures alone, right? All by God's power and to his glory alone so that builds hope in our lives we don't depart i know bob you've been through a lot of trials and tribulations but bob didn't depart from christ and so it builds hope in our lives saying yeah i really belong and i'm really going to be partaker in that kingdom that's true of every one of you every one of you god will do that through the discipline of the lord and so that's why the book of proverbs is saying don't shun the discipline when it comes upon your life don't curse god but be grateful and bless him and say thank you. Now, that's hard. When you get the flat tire on the way to the cabin on the 4th of July weekend with all the orange barrels put out. By the way, my grandpa thought it was a conspiracy that the road department waited till the 4th of July to put out their orange barrels. <laughs> he thought it was a divine, it was like some great conspiracy with the, the government, you know. So, anyway, I'm sorry, Brian, you had your hand up. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, 16, 17. Therefore, yes. we do not lose heart, but through our outer man is de- though our, our our outer man is decaying, 
yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Wow. Notice how the affliction is de- comparatively, it's light. Not that any of us don't suffer maybe tremendously, but compared to the eternal glory, the resurrection, and the glories that we're going to be part it's light. It's nothing compared to what we're going to receive. And by the way, that's the answer to evil. The answer to evil is that God overcomes it, and he's going to use it even that for our good. So you and I will be one day in the kingdom to say, do you remember how bad it was when you'd have a cold or the flu? And we'll say, look at now. And we'll say, do you remember when my back was so bad I couldn't run out for that pass and I fell over and it made a, you know, disgrace of myself on the football field or whatever? And then you and I will be in the kingdom to say, look, the Lord has gotten rid of all these these things that came upon us. So he's going to get all the glory. That's why he's going to remove every tear, right, in the kingdom. It's all going to be for his glory. He overcomes. So the answer to the question of evil is that God uses it redemptively. He uses it to bring his glory in our good. That's what he's using it for. Now, let me leave you with this last slide. We'd, I promised um, some that we would actually finish this PowerPoint, so let's try to get through it here. Let's do a little kind of wrap-up here. So what I'm saying is that God providentially brings this about. That is the discipline of the Lord. He brings this about in the lives of his people. It is not typically the believer's role to do this. Again, now why am I bringing that up? I remember my story some years ago. I had a person that I knew that was trying to bring discipline upon someone else, and they were not sinning. It was simply a disagreement between two Christians, one in which they weren't sinning by holding to either position, but the one was trying to discipline the other. That is not our role. God is the one who providentially brings the discipline upon people's lives. Now, notice I talk about some exceptions here. That is, sometimes believers do engage in sin, And believers can have a role in remedying that situation. One place you see that is, for example, in Matthew 18. I'm I'm specifically thinking of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. And that's where, remember, if a, a, a brother or sister sins against you, bring their sin to them privately first. And then if they won't listen to you, if they do, you've won your brother or implied your sister. But if they won't listen to you, you bring two or three witnesses so that by two or three witnesses, every fact would be established. That comes from Deuteronomy 19 originally. So if they won't listen to the two or three witnesses, then you're to bring it before the church. And if they won't listen to the church, they're to be treated as a tax gatherer. In other words, excluded from the assembly as an unbeliever. And again, that is part of the discipline of the Lord so that a true believer says, I can't stand being apart from the assembly. I want to repent and come back. So God uses even church discipline, that's what's being referred to in Matthew 18, to bring true believers back. True true believers back to repentance. Now, notice I also mentioned Titus 3.10. That's where Paul says we are to reject, reject the factious man after two or three warnings, knowing that he self stands self-condemned. Now, the factious man, remember, that's the term in Greek, heretikos, where we get our term heretic. So you're rejecting the heretic. And by the way, a heretic is one who created a faction or a division, and it could either be doctrinally, that's typically the way it occurs, but it also could be through their actions. Remember, we always act on what we truly believe. Doctrine and deed go hand in hand. So the factious man is the one who's creating dissensions in a church, 
because either they're teaching wrong doctrine and they won't let it go and they keep insisting upon it or they're living in such a way where they're claiming the right to sin. The idea in the Old Testament was they're sinning with a high hand. That kind of sin can't be atoned for. Why? Because the person is claiming the right to sin. It's not that, hey, I'm sinning and I don't want to do this. I want to turn from that. I'm sorrow for that. No, there's atonement for that. But sinning with the high hand is the person who's claiming the right to sin in the new covenant. And that's what church discipline is for. And so, yes, believers and elders have a role in those processes. But again, we're not those who are to simply bring about church discipline just for every single person who has a disagreement with us, right? No, it's sin as defined by the new covenant. Uh, Notice number two here, God's discipline for his people is always for our good. That's what we've been laying out. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And if you follow that whole section as Bob laid out all the way to Romans 8, 39, remember that's where Paul asked, can anything in all of creation separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? No. Not angels, nor principalities, nor powers. And that's why we don't have to operate as dualists. We don't have to try to manipulate the demonic realm. Why? Because Christ has it under his control. Do you remember in the book of Jude? The book of Jude, Jude records the idea that there was this battle between Michael the archangel and Satan. They had a dispute over Moses' body. And do you remember that Jude records Michael the archangel saying that Michael did not make a resounding judgment or railing judgment, I think is what it says, against Satan, but he said, may the Lord rebuke you. So think about that. If Michael the archangel would not take it upon himself to rebuke another angel, this, it, albeit a fallen one, Satan, how much less should you and I as mere mortals be those who are trying to manipulate the cosmic forces and the demons? I remember years ago, again, I was a brand new Christian. I used to hear people who would go on prayer walks and they were trying to bind demons and bind Satan. I bind this and I bind that. And I, again, I didn't know any theology, but I kept thinking to myself, if he's being bound, who's letting him out? <laughs> right? I mean, who are the Christians who are saying, I want him loosed? I want Because if he's being bound all the time, how does he get out? So here's the point. It's not our authority. We don't have the authority to bind Satan. That's God alone, his authority. He is the one who sits over his divine counsel and sovereignly uses even the angels for your good. Do you know, every demon, every molecule, every single thing in this universe is going to be used so that you get your resurrected body and you enter into glory. Everything. He's using everything. The next time you get a flat tire, praise God. He's using it for your glory. And again, that's something I need to hear. I get whiny if we have a backup on 494 but he's using all things for our good. And that's why we should not whine or complain about the discipline of the Lord as Proverbs is laying out for us. Yes, Adam. Yes, um, I'm sorry, we have a... Oh, do you have the mic? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, Eric, first. I didn't see you. I'll just say very briefly. You're stealthy, Eric. Very briefly, and then I'll I'll bring it over there. Okay, Um, thank you. You know, there's the subject of tribulation in here, too. Yes. And to me, there is a tremendous encouragement these every one of the apostles well so many of them and the early believers they suffered tribulation now 
in God's providential will, that had a purpose because no one will willingly die for something that they know to be false. And these people who were eyewitnesses were willing to suffer tribulation and death. Yes. And they could have wondered, why is God allowing this to happen? Well, it's a testimony for us. Yes. I'll, well I'll said. Take this Amen. Over That's well said, Eric. Thank you. Yes. And Eric, uh, in First uh, Corinthians chapter yes. five, like it hits right on this God's discipline, but church discipline is also it's the Lord working through the church, exactly. and He providentially disciplines. And so Paul says about the man who had his father's wife, uh, he. Uh, says, uh, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present uh, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so delivering someone over, uh, God forbid, putting them out of the church, if it comes to that point, is to deliver someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so their soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. And so God providentially bringing discipline through his fallen angel, through Satan, uh, afflicts uh, the person and hopefully, uh, if they truly belong to him, the spirit will convict them of sin and bring them to repentance and back to the church. And so yeah. putting them out of the church is now, we don't deal with them, but now God providentially deals with them. Amen. That's so, it. Exactly right. Yeah, that's well said. Sums Thank up your you. point, I think. That's a great uh, point to end on. Unless someone has um, one other comment or question, I'll... That's perfect. Yes, God uses all things for our good, even church discipline for those who truly belong to him. So amen. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Well, well um, hey, Jessica, could you, oh, I'm sorry. Carly could bring it there. Good. So the, the, so the fellow that he was just talking about that was put out of the church, would that be considered high-handed sin? Yes, that's a very good way to, to tie the, the old covenant terminology. Those who are sinning with a high hand are claiming the right. So church discipline is reserved for those who will not repent. When you have the witnesses that come before them or the church addresses them, they say, no, I'm going to continue in my, either my false doctrine or my false deeds. And they will, they're claiming the right to sin. Those are the ones who end up being expelled. Yes. And, but yet, if they're true believers and they're that hard-hearted, what... Adam is just showing us from 1 Corinthians 5 is that God can use even church discipline for the good for those who truly... Yeah, it worked. It did. He repented. And then they wouldn't let him back in, ironically. <laughs> so Paul had to address that. But you're right. It did work in his case, as far as we know. Absolutely. So, yes. So with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the discipline that you do put in our lives, that you really are causing all things to work for the good for those who love you who are called according to your purpose. We do pray that you give us the wisdom to receive the hardships of life, knowing that they are for our good, and that one day in glory we'll give you all praise and honor and glory for being the one who overcomes on our behalf. And we pray now for Bob and the sermon, Lord, that we would understand 1 Corinthians 3 very well. Help us to think well upon the text, and uh, all for the sake of living lives that are pleasing to you so that we may not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.